So we've got a different kind of show lined up this week, I think. We've got one, not one. No, God, I'm rubbish. I can't even get this started. <laughs> we've got a different kind of show lined up this week. We've got one, not one, no, not one. Oh, <laughs> see, this, you can't count. If Ashley was on, we'd do outtakes. We've got a different kind of show lined up this week. We've got not one, but two guests to keep me out of trouble. Because Lord knows I need that. We've got Laura Kalbag and Rachel Andrew. Hello. Hello. Because we're going to talk about publishing this week. And in particular, I want to talk about the fallout from this week's news that Five Simple Steps has suddenly closed. Cool. Reminds me of when I used to sound professional. When we started, you know, I used to do an intro. Yeah. Like, this is unfinished business. Do you remember that? Yeah, and that was before you were trying to do the clever way that you slip people's names into the conversation. Oh, no, that's when I thought I was doing a radio show. thought I was Chris Evans, except less ginger. <laughs> yeah, I used to do that, didn't it? This is a weekly discussion show about apes and Don Draper and personality disorders and weighing in hotel kettles. Why do people listen to this show? <laughs> it's good. I enjoyed the, the Mad Men episode last week. I managed to just catch up on season six literally the weekend before I listened to it. That was good timing because poor old Josh Cleland is also catching up, but he started off like series back. So he's still on series four, I think. Oh, he, ha- he has to wait then because you were spoilerful. <laughs> All the spoilers. <laughs> I couldn't help it though. How are you supposed to have an episode about what's coming up when you don't talk about what's happened? Do you listen? Do you watch Mad Men, Rachel? No, I've never seen it. I'm not a huge telly person, really. Uh, the only telly we really watch is like really, really rubbish telly, like late at night. We watch things like The Biggest Loser and stuff to get like the code out of our brains. Oh, I love Biggest Loser. Yeah, it's marvellous, isn't it? <laughs> I like the fat programmes. I like Obese, A Year to Save My Life as well. That's another favourite. Well, we watch it and then Drew says, every five minutes, Drew says, where do they get those T-shirts from? How do they get a <laughs> pair of shorts that big? <laughs> That's Giacomo. Yeah. So Giacomo like is where it is. Yeah, we imagine this kind of like a Biggest Loser wardrobe department where they're just like sewing up these vast sheets into, into shorts and t-shirts. Oh, I imagine <sighs> in the US those kinds of clothes are probably more widely available than they are over here. <laughs> How dare you say such a thing about our American cousins and their expanding girth. Oh, it's it's terrifying though. I just, yeah, I, it is amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> So help people must listen to this show for some reason or another because we, we, the collective we, we got shortlisted for Podcast of the Year at the Net Awards. Yay, congratulations. Well, you got a big part of that. There is your show, though. Dah! It's all about the guests. I'm a judge on that, so I, sh- I shouldn't be biased. Actually, I've already done my judging anyway. Have you? <laughs> We're not going to pin you down. <laughs> Stuff got shortlisted for podcast, uh, for podcast. Stuff got shortlisted for agency of the year as well, which that's, that's two things. Dead chuffed about that. We might even go down to London for the awards. Yeah, we're going. I've, I've, I haven't been able to go. Last year I was invited and was in Scotland, I think, speaking, so I couldn't go. So, but of course, um, 24 Ways has been shortlisted as well. So Drew and I are going to go down and go to the, the bash and other things, so it should be good. Yeah, we're going. Um, Aral's been shortlisted in three categories, so yeah, I'll be there. Plus one this year. Blimey, three. I thought I was special. Sorry, he's not competing with uh, either of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that'd be good. My ears pop usually when they go that far south. <laughs> 
Well, we we should do it. We should do a roving episode. I think um, mm. from the Net Awards. Funnily enough, on Sean Johnson's advice, you know Sean, he's um he does some other podcast that <laughs> escapes my memory. I can't remember what it's called now. He suggested buying one of those portable recorders, like a, I can't remember, Tascam or Zoom or something, like one of these little sort of uh, flash drive recorders that you plug a couple of condenser mics into and then you can go out and record on the on the spot. Hmm. I think that I'm going to order one of those from Amazon because they're like 200 quid plus the mics. So, yeah, it's not expensive. And that we could do lots, we could have lots of fun with that. Yeah, I think that'd be a really good idea. Get around and get get some opinions from people in, in the uh, in the audience and stuff. That'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be a, it'd be a really great. I think because you, you have so many people there you could talk to as well at the awards and when you go to conferences and things. Mm, no, and uh, I've got a Planet of the Apes episode lined up in July, which I'm not going to talk too much about. But I might actually have to go and do the podcast live with a person. I've never done that before. I've never done one where we've sort of sat face to face. So that could be quite fun. You have to be careful that you don't start doing things with your hands and <laughs> things like that because you're talking to each other face to face and can understand each other's body language. Whereas mm. you don't get that over radio. I don't think we've got a lot of time for banter today. I want to get right on it because we do actually have, for the first time ever, I think we've actually got some unfinished business <laughs> <laughs> to talk about. I can't lend credit to that. Owen Gregory actually pulled that gag first. So he said I could have it for free. You've given him credit. I want to talk about Five Simple Steps, what happened and what that means to publishers and authors and a little, little bit of sort of talking around the subject. So what I want to do, I just want to get a sponsor out of the way first and then we can get straight onto it. So our first sponsor today is Gather Content and they help people who build websites to work with their clients to plan, organize and collaborate on web content. So I bet everyone who's ever made a website for a client or for their company they're going to know what I mean when I say that planning, gathering, organizing and collaborating on content is one of the trickiest parts of any project. You know, people email you content that's in Word or Excel or, God, I even had people sending it to me in PowerPoint. And you can't blame people for that because those are the applications that normal folk use every day, right? But then we have to trawl through them, what's often multiple documents, and cut and paste what's useful out of them. And we've got to keep track of everything. People send you the same stuff twice just in case. And, you know, you've got to store them in Dropbox. Then there's a way of finding how to collaborate over changes. You know, I often edit clients' copy for them because you know, it's, it's mostly terrible. But often because I'm really picky about the content that goes into the things that I'm designing. So then I have to tell them what I've changed. And all of this stuff can take longer than designing the website. And that's where Gather Content comes in. It's a web application that helps you keep all your content in one place. You can collaborate with clients on changes, and then you can get approval when you need it with uh, Gather Content's reminders and due dates. Gather Content breaks content down to help you guide your clients and copywriters through what needs to be written. And then when you're done, you can just export that approved content directly into a CMS using one of their plugins or their API. So they've set up a special page for listeners for the show. It's unfinished.bz slash gather content and even better if you sign up through that page and you use the discount code unfinished you'll get wait for it 20 percent off your subscription to gather content forever it's not just a limited offer it's for all time that's an amazing deal and that's gather content now you see that sounded like a slick radio announcer there <laughs> that was very good yeah no, nobody noticed a little slip up i can edit that out 
let's talk about five simple steps and the issues that it raises, I think, for other publishers and for authors. So maybe you should explain what happened. What, what actually happened with five simple steps and why are they closing? Okay. Let's do that. And I want to, I want to get some things off my chest. I want to say some things that have been on my mind and you, you know, feel free to interrupt me if you think that I'm banging on or I'm wrong or something. But basically out of the blue, as far as I was concerned and I know other authors were concerned, mm-hmm. five simple steps closed on April 8th, which was what Tuesday. And the first that we knew about it was an email that basically said, we're closed. Here's a link to your files. We're giving you back all of the publishing rights. Well, I want to talk about this in more detail in a minute. But it was basically a kind of a, it was a bolt from the blue. And I think it was yeah. a bolt from the blue, not just for authors, but it was a bolt from the blue for customers as well. You know, because people have become quite attached to that brand. You know, it become quite, uh, it become kind of, you know, one of the UK's kind of popular niche certainly web publishers. Yeah, totally. And there's obviously an awful lot going on that we don't know about and it isn't our business to know about. But I think the long and short of it is is that Five Simple Steps did have to close. Independent of anything else that was happening with their businesses, Five Simple Steps itself had been operating at a loss, Mark said this week. Despite selling some, making some really successful books... They weren't making any money from it. Mark and Emma, they're, they're, they're both friends. They've been incredibly supportive of me in the past. Mm-hmm. And I really do respect them. I respect anybody for making difficult decisions like that. It must have been really, really hard. Yes. Yeah. I can't imagine having to, to make that decision. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a similar sort of business, a couple in business, there's a huge amount tied up in those kind of decisions, isn't there? Yeah. And a lot of people that they, that they know were involved and they wouldn't have taken it lightly because of that as well. I think it takes courage and I think it takes real guts to close up something that people find popular. Mm -hmm. And I suppose you could say, because people do, business is business. But I know that it's really easy to get sentimental about a business that you've worked hard on, particularly for, you know, for a long time. They were, they were doing five simple steps for five years. Hmm. It made me think about what happened to us years ago, we, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd gone into business with an, another business partner, former business partner and set up something else and stuff had kind of been pushed to one side. It was still a, it was still the name that people knew, but actually behind the scenes, it wasn't the company that was doing the work. And our business partner was quite vocal, actually quite, quite adamant that we needed to close down this stuff and nonsense legal entity. We needed to shut the company. We needed to get rid of our VAT registration and, you know, all the things that we'd been kind of keeping going. And I, I in particular resisted it for a long time. We never did do it, thankfully, but I resisted it because I was really sentimental. It had been something that I'd worked on for, for years since 98. It, you know, it'd been my thing and I didn't want to close it because I felt really attached to it, even though it might not have made the best business sense at the time. Hmm. I didn't want to let it go. Yeah. I think that we'd be fools to carry on maintaining a business that doesn't make any money or makes little or no money, as as Mark said. But especially if that business isn't the focus of our attention, and if it's not the thing that we want to be doing, which plainly it isn't the thing that they want to be doing. No. 
you know, we'd be forced to, to carry on working in a business like that. So, you know, it had to go. It had to close. Totally respect the decision. I respect them for doing it. I'm very grateful for everything that they did do. I think they made a, a tremendous difference. And the deals that they struck with authors, you know, people like me, I think it changed the way that a lot of small businesses work with authors. And, you know, we might talk about that later on. So I'm not, I'm not upset about that. I am upset about the way that the announcement of the closure was handled. And I'm mm -hmm. upset about the effect that that had on authors. And I think that there are lessons that we can learn, obviously, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that might help us if something similar happens in the future. And I think those things are worth talking about. Yeah. The biggest thing was the abruptness of the announcement. Absolutely. I mean, I, I got the email like you did and then went to, you know, switched to Twitter and was surprised to see that also the announcement was on Twitter at the same time. So it was exactly the same time. Yeah, there was no, there was no, you know, I uh, sat down to check my mail. I was in the middle of doing something. I sat down to check my mail and saw the email, went to Twitter, saw it was on Twitter and thought, oh, that doesn't give me any time at all to, to think about how to react to this or to think about what I'm going to do about my book, you know, it was, I was sort of reading it and thinking, oh, well, fair enough, you know, that that's, that's their, their business decision. That wasn't really a problem. But it was like, oh, oh, now I've got to think about this quickly because it, it's out there. I think that was the main issue for me and for a lot of people is that we weren't given any prior warning. And the most difficult part of that was that we didn't have the opportunity to think about or to make alternative arrangements for the sale of the books. I don't think we had adequate, adequate time, but I, I, I don't want to focus on the negative for, for, for a bit. I want to, I want to focus on some of the positive things. Like we should, we should mm -hmm. talk about this because there were some parts of the closure that I think were handled incredibly well. I think they went above and beyond what they needed to do for us. And I think yeah. it's worth actually saying that and, and, and thanking them for it because, you know, as a legal entity, five simple steps as a limited company, what they could have done was they could have sold or they could have given away the publishing rights to all of our books yeah. to anyone. They could just, just about anyone, you know, they could have sold it to another publisher, a big publisher, you know, whoever they could have sold it to the guy that runs the laundrette because, yeah. you know, when you own a business and you own its assets, you can do that. You're quite within your rights to do that. Yeah. One of the reasons why people went, to work with them in the first place was because they have this appreciation for quality. And, you know, I just, oh God, I dread to think, I dread to think what a really cheap knockoff version of hardboard would be like. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine sort of all those pictures printed on like what, 80 gram, almost transparent paper. Oh yes. Yes. Um... You know, naming no names. O'Reilly. <laughs> um, <laughs> So they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They did the honorable thing. And it was a very honorable thing. They canceled our contracts and they handed back to us all of the publishing and the distribution rights of the book. Yes. And basically they've given us everything that they can, they can sort of legally give us, you know, in terms of our books and, you know, the ability to sell them as they are for now and the ability to do a reprint and, and, you know, use the content in the future, um, as, as we wish. So. We always own the copyright and my contract was only for one edition of Hard Boiled. 
if I wanted to have done a second edition of Hard Boiled, I could have done that wherever I wanted to. Mm-hmm. That was a deal that that I struck. I'm not. I don't know whether anybody else's deals were different. No, my, mine was just a pocket guide, so they were, they were slightly different anyway. What this meant is that we can now go and find new homes for the books, and it did come very out of the blue and I didn't have an awful lot of time to think about things this week. To be honest, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit player in all of this. You know, it's hard boiled has been out for quite a long time and you know, we're on the long tail in terms of book sales. So it was a fairly easy decision for me to put it with smashing magazine. I think it's a good fit there as well. Yeah. Well, I've worked with them before and I like them and mm-hmm. I'm on the same deal there as I was with five simple steps in that it's a 50, 50 split of everything. Did you approach them or did they approach you? I had an email conversation with them about it, basically saying, you know, do you want to take this on? Because, you know, there's, there's a load of things that I could have done, which we'll talk about. There were lots and lots of ways that I could have carried on selling at the, the EPUB version, especially. I think that a lot of people that may have bought hard-boiled may have already bought hard-boiled. And I think that the trade-off going with somebody like Smashing Magazine and obviously splitting the the profit 50-50 is that they'll give me a new audience. They've got a lot of reach. They've got a lot of marketing power. And I think that that's going to do me some good. And I think it's probably going to be well worth the 50% that that, that I'm... Yeah, I was thinking that as an upside of the situation was that it seemed like a lot of authors had an opportunity to share their um, books in a different space now, in a different market, whether it's on their own sites or through another publisher. Um, They've sort of got a bit of marketing going on now because everyone knows that the books are being moved about. Mm -hmm. I'm happy about that part of it. Um, As for the printed books, and I want to talk about this a bit later on in terms of what we're going to do with them, but there are printed versions of hard-boiled and other books uh, in stock around the world. And what they could have done is they could have just sold that to anyone. You know, you can you can sell through clearance houses. You can sell books by the pound. Mm-hmm. I could have walked into, you know, it's kind of like failing shopping centres. You know, there's always that remainder's bookstore. Yeah. With some kind of, I don't know, fan dabby dozy by the crankies right? <laughs> for 99p. And, you know, hardboard could have been sat next to that, which, which wouldn't have been very nice. What they did do is they said, like, if you, if there are printed versions of your book in existence and, you know, there are of, of hard boiled, those are mine. They're, they're mine now. They're going to give me those. Um, and I can do whatever I want with those. And I think that's incredibly generous because they've paid to have them printed and they've paid to have them shipped and stored in warehouses around the world. And they're not going to see a return on that. So, you know, there's, there's value. There's value in those books, which they've given to me, which I think is an incredibly honorable thing to do. Yes. I, yeah. I think, you know, I think, I think they have tried very hard to do the right thing i mean they've also put out there all their information and templates and things for creating ebooks which is a super resource for people um so that's you know that's kind of a gift to just generally the community so that you know again you know i think i think they've tried very hard to do the right thing i think so i think hearts are very much in the right place i think you know there is that thing you know i think a few of us feel a bit like oh that was a bit abrupt and that's caused some problems for people but i don't think it's you know was in any way because they wanted to cause people any trouble. I think that was uh, probably a business decision. And they've tried very hard to do the right thing by people. I really feel that. Let's just talk about some of the problems then, because there are obviously problems. I mean, feelings are running high or have run high this week. With a generous dollop of of hindsight, American listeners are not going to know what a dollop is, are they? 
<laughs> it probably means something awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not going to have the faintest idea. We should just throw in words like that. <laughs> no, see, now I'm distracted. How, how could things have been handled differently and better? Because mm-hmm. I think the problem really stemmed from the unexpectedness of the announcement. The fact that it did come so out of the blue and mm. that it didn't give time for anyone to think about what's best for us and our own individual situations. Because, you know, what's best for me and hardboiled isn't the same as what's best for you, Rachel, with the pocket guide. That's right. And, you know, and people whose books weren't even printed yet, um, that, you know, were at point at the point of being published and things, you know, their situation is very different again. And I'm actually most upset for those people, for people whose pocket mm-hmm. guides had not been out that long that were maybe waiting for them to be printed, which is when a lot of people like to buy them, you know, when they're those lovely little printed things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also people that had been working on, were still working on up and coming books um, and had no hint or no indication that actually it wasn't going to come to fruition this time. So there were yeah, actually I mean, that's, that's authors tough. that weren't, even published ebooks yet. Yes. I And I think that I think that that's very sad. The problem that I think is that the lack of time, the abruptness of the announcement and the lack of time didn't enable us to think about what's best and it, it I you know I was really cautious about making hasty decisions and we've seen this Rachel I think we're on the uh, the base camp thread that we'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. Where I really hope that people aren't going to be forced to make hasty decisions about what to do with their books. And the fact that they're even having to think about that needlessly, you know, is one of the things that I think could have been handled very differently. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, what we can do is, you know, we could do, I think Val Head, uh, who's been on the show, she decided to give her pocket guide away for anything that you want to pay for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a nice little kind of widget on the site and, you know, you can pay whatever you want. You can have it for free or you can, you know, you can pay a thousand dollars for it if you want to. You could, obviously, you could set up an individual sales channel. You could, uh, John Hicks has put his, uh, icon handbook on Gumroad just temporarily. I mean, I, I was already set up to sell my self-published book. So I've just added another product to my Shopify store, which is how I sell my own book and put it out that way. Because that was just easy for me. And that's one of the things that we considered as well. And the only real reason why we didn't go down that route now, and we will, we definitely will be going down that route in future, doing everything like you've done, is we just didn't have time this week. Yeah, I mean, actually, I was in a different situation because I'd already done all that process for my own book. So it wasn't a big deal for me to go, you know, it took me a few minutes to to make my pocket guide on sale. Yeah. Because I already had the whole setup and I'd already thought through all the, all the situations, so... And I guess the other option is to do what I did for Hardboiled, which is to find a new distributor. And, you know, it wasn't a hard decision to go with Smashing because, you know, I've, I've dealt with them so much before. But there's not really that many in terms of web publishers, are there? Uh, people that specialise in books about the web. No. Um, obviously, a book apart. And they have a very unique and strong brand. And I think this is one of the mm. potential problems that Five Simple Steps would have faced when they wanted to sell uh, or potentially wanted to sell their their stock or their stable of authors and, and, and works is that somebody like a a book apart you know they know what they're doing they have their schedule coming up for the next year they you know they're focused on making a book apart so they're not just focused on selling you know other books hmm. I suppose the same thing would probably go for uh, Rosenfeld Media 
because they, you know, they're a similar, a similar niche player. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky, you know, I was lucky that Hardboiled have, uh, uh, sorry, Hardboiled Smashing Magazine, you know, they have their store infrastructure set up. I know that they've got a, you know, a big marketing reach. Um, and I know that they've got a similar appreciation for quality and for, and for brilliant mm-hmm. customer service. And, you know, that's important to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, they do a lovely job on, on the books they, they produce there. Um, you know, and, and, and they care a lot about, about this stuff. So here's what I think could have been done, done differently in, in a couple of different ways. Everybody that's written for five simple steps, as far as I know, anyway, they're not full-time authors. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they're first-time authors and everybody's busy and they're all busy trying to earn a living. So it would have been really helpful given, for example, five simple steps is experience with Shopify. Cause you know, they run on Shopify, same as you, yeah. same as we're going to. You know, they've got a relationship with people that work there. They could have arranged just a single page template based site for each of the books. Um, and said in the announcement, we've already set up a Shopify store for you. You need to plug in your own credit card details or your own payment gateway or whatever you need to do with Shopify. And we're going to redirect from each book's URL to, you know, a new home, temporary home. They could have done that. Mm-hmm. I think that they probably should have done that. The other thing is that within an hour of that email being sent out, one of the authors independently set up a Basecamp project and invited everybody. Mm-hmm. So we got, we got to talk about you know, what we, our ideas were for proceeding. We got to ask each other advice about stuff. You know, we got to link to some of your posts before I think you joined the, the project. Mm-hmm. Five simple steps of they've joined that base camp now. So, you know, they've been involved and they're being very helpful. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Things like book baby with things like giving us our own assets. But to be honest, and I don't think it's a heavy criticism. I don't think I'm being unfair. They should have taken the initiative. They should have set that base camp thing up. They should have done it before the closure. Yeah. I kind of wonder if, if they were also worried about how this was all going to go down with the authors. I think I would have been. Um, and I think sometimes it's quite easy to, to do things and think, Oh, you know, to try and put a bit of distance. I don't know. I don't know whether there was, you know, cause I, I, I can't imagine having to send those emails, to be honest, to people who, a lot of whom, uh, my friends. You know, I was sort of put, when, when I was sort of thinking through this, I was thinking of myself in their shoes and a lot of the authors for Five Simple Steps are, are friends of Mark and Emma's. You know, we know them. Um, mm. if, if not close friends were certainly, you know, acquaintances, we speak at the same conferences, people know each other. And I don't know whether there was a little bit of wanting to put a bit of distance. I know then, you know, then they were invited into the, into the group and that was great. Um, and I don't think there's any sort of animosity at all, but. I can I can understand how making those decisions when they did it must have been very very difficult. It must have been incredibly difficult, particularly with everything else that they had or had going on. Yes, which is a completely separate issue, and you know we we don't need to touch on that. No, I think it would have been incredibly hard. I wouldn't want to be in that position. I've got complete respect for them for actually making that decision. I think, though, in fairness, because they have. I start, you know, it's not past tense because they have a friendly relationship with people that they've known for a long time mm-hmm. that they could have handled things in, in, in a different way. Um, and it didn't need to be quite so abrupt. I mean, just, just thinking about the email that got sent out and, and when they did talk about selling the assets of the business or selling the business as a going concern to other people 
in the run-up, mm-hmm. in the month running up to the announcement about the closure. Yes. That's, that's a matter of public record. They've put that on their website. So there were people out there that knew that Five Simple Steps was going to close. And, you know, for good reason. I think that that courtesy should have been extended to the authors. I think that's the shame. And I think it, it, there would have been opportunities. And, and I think there have been people who have gone on record and said that, you know, they would have been interested. But now, of course, everyone's fragmented and doing their own thing. And it, it's a lot harder now for someone to say, you know, I could help you all do something. Or, you know, because, because now so many people have gone and made their own arrangements. Yeah, that ship has well and truly sailed, yeah. hasn't it? And I think that's that's possibly the the biggest shame is that you know actually as a group of authors we could have potentially done something or approached someone as as a group, but because it got sort of thrown on us, you know, people just went right. What do I do? I mean, you know, you, one you know an off the cuff idea is that you set up a Shopify store just for pocket guides, and it's called you know pocketguiderefuge.com. dot <laughs> com. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that's where all the pocket guides get sold. And I'm sure yeah. that the people that were involved in editing those books and you know producing those books, particularly with the templates that are now available, you know, you could have actually made a a nice little sideline. And it would have been more valuable, I think, because to people with pocket guides, I think there was a great bonus that they were being sold in collections and things like that, because you might have bought a book that you might not have necessarily got otherwise and been introduced to a new topic and a new author. And when it's fragmented and those books are all over the place, you don't necessarily have that opportunity for discovery anymore. I think it's a big shame for the pocket guides brand. Um, And I think the pocket guides brand really does belong to the authors to fragment it in the way that you just described, I think is a, is a real shame. I, I think with the pocket guides, I think po- there is still a possibility that, that something could come out of that in that way because, okay, you know, a lot of us are, have put them up on our own sites, but there's no reason why they couldn't be rebundled and sold together. Some kind of profit split going on yeah, on, a, on a separate both, site. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, there's, there's no reason that couldn't happen. Um, if enough people wanted to do it, um, you know, or, and, and I think the, the toughest thing there, the people who haven't got their books out yet, you know, because they were expecting the kind of marketing push that being able to bundle them would bring and, and having them on the Five Simple Steps site. You know, for those of us who've got an existing book out there, you know, it, it's less of an issue, I think, because people know about them. But it, it, it's kind of a shame for those those new authors who don't then have that, that extra help to get their book out. Couldn't agree more. Here's, here's what I'd do, you know, with a huge kind of dollop of hindsight... <laughs> That's that word again. <laughs> I think that with the news actually out there, with people that uh, were being approached about buying the business, so there are conversations or there were conversations taking place, they could have extended that courtesy to authors. And, you know, what I would have done with hindsight is just to send it, you know, the email could go something like, you know, for several reasons, we've decided to close five simple steps. You don't have to go into detail. We don't have to know about mm-hmm. anything else. It's their business. It's their decision, perfectly within their rights to do it. We just decided to close it. They didn't need to go into any detail. They could just say, we're going to stop selling your book on, what was it, April 8th, Mm -hmm. right? And they could have given us, you know, that's two or four weeks notice from now, something like that. So we're telling you this now so that we can help you get ready to sell your book some other way. That would have been all it would have taken. Yeah, that that would have have been lovely. And I think, you know, I mean, like, I would have been in a better position to maybe help people you know, work out how to sell them themselves if that's what we're going to do or, you know, but to sort of it be rushed on, you know, I mean, I've, I've emailed, I mean, the day that, that the announcement was made, um, I spent all day, um, 
emailing people basically because I got so many emails. You know, <laughs> people were like, "Oh, what am I going to do?" And it was that, and then it was the same day the Heartbleed book was announced. And <sighs> basically, I write and talk about publishing and 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 selling things online and, and so on. And but I spend most of my day to day doing ops stuff. So I had all these servers I had to patch. So <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was patching servers and sending emails. And uh, you know, so it was it was yeah, the perfect storm for my very diverse uh, business life. <laughs> so a, a, a complete digression then, just while we just like swing wildly away from topic. Do any perch users need to worry about Heartbleed from a perch point of view, or is it purely from a server management point of view? Right. Well, not really, but yes. So <laughs> there is not really got anything to do with perch as it is because perch is self-hosted. So, um, I mean, obviously we're patching our servers. Um, I'm still waiting for one certificate to be renewed. I've had to sort of chase all these SSL certificates and then all of our servers will be absolutely safe and they're all patched at this point, but they, some of them need certificates renewing. Um, or we don't actually store any sort of secret data. So there's not too much of a worry there. In terms of perch users, the issue there is your hosting. Um, so you need to make sure that your hosting has patched their servers and any servers that you use to log in and so on. So things like, you know, cPanel installs, um, and things, you know, you might be logging in there. Um, all those passwords I would suggest changing. I would suggest changing things like database passwords, SSH passwords, all that sort of stuff. But it's important to only change them after they've been patched, isn't it? That's and right. So, so what I would suggest to anyone with any hosting, not even perch related, is contact your host and make sure that it's all patched and they've dealt with it. Um, and then once that's happened, change all your passwords, you know, just to be on the safe side. And, and then, you know, that really should all you need to do. If you have got SSL, uh, you know, you've got secure certificates, perhaps because you're using um, Stripe or something on your site and um, and you've, you've got SSL, then you can get your SSL certificates reissued. So you need to contact the person who issued your um, secure certificate and ask them to reissue it for you. You might have to send them a certificate signing request and they'll reissue it and then you can put that certificate in place or your host can and then you should be all all set to go. So, yes, it's been great fun for ops people. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, the thing is, you know, people have been, we've had quite a lot of email and and support requests on purchase concerned about it. Um, And a lot of the time, these are the same people who are running wildly insecure versions of PHP because they're still on PHP 5.2. Please update your servers. (laughs) Just generally, (laughs) you know, if you've got shared hosting, it really is worth checking that you're on the latest version of PHP and and that they are proactive when stuff like this happens, is what I would say. Um, If they're not, move to somewhere that is. Well, I got an email from Media Temple this week, Tuesday, basically saying this thing has happened and we've sorted it for you. No further action needs to be taken. So I rolled over and went back to bed. Yes, I would uh, say I, I would still change passwords generally. Um, as once once people have said that's all all good, because there's you know a theoretical chance that yes, someone could have read the memory, could have passwords, and and, and there's so no on. way of tracking if they did. There's no way of knowing, and it is terrifying. I I I did um, check out servers that you know were vulnerable, which you know an awful lot of servers were. I did you know check out using one of ours. What could be accessed? And yeah, it's really terrifying basically <laughs> so yes do do what you're told <laughs> talking about trust for a minute then because i've got trust in the hosting company hopefully that they're going to fix things for me <laughs> trusting people with information i think that it's completely reasonable i have no 
objections whatsoever at five simple steps is need to keep the news of the closure away from book buyers. I have no issue with that whatsoever. You know, bad news is bad for business. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what they could have said was in this email to authors, they could have said, look, you know, I'm sure you understand why it's important that we keep news secret because we don't want to deter people from buying your book. You know? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I am absolutely sure knowing people as I do, I don't know every author, but you know, I know a lot of them. I'm absolutely convinced that every single one would have respected that need for privacy in exactly the same way as the people that were spoken to about taking over the business did when they were trusted with the information. I don't see any difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the main issue that I have with the way that the closure was handled. And, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? But I just think that that particular part of the, of, of the announcement could have been done so, so much better. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's a shame because it, it would have kind of given us a chance to sort of, um, make something of the fact, you know, that there was a closure and there's obviously a lot of talk about it to be able to say, but look, here's all the books. Cause I'd quite like to see a list of, you know, where they all are now so that people could go and say, you know, oh, I wanted a five simple steps book. You know, where, where is this particular book? Where's it been sold from? And, and be able to go through and find it. You know, we could have arranged all that at the very least if we'd had a bit of notice. Actually, that's a brilliant idea. Somebody, somebody listening. Do we have any listeners? Somebody should actually do that. Somebody should actually do that. Pocketguidesrefuge.com. Actually, I mean, ideally, it'd be good if it, if it came upon, you know, and it'd be great if on the, on that five simple steps, you know, we're closing site that that was listed so that people going there would then find where their new home was. I think would be ideal. I think that's a bloody good idea. I see no reason why that can't happen. Well, you need, you want to redirect the URLs as well, because I imagine that there's links to particular books from blog posts and things like that and you wouldn't want to break all of those urls mm, yeah i think yeah i think that's that's certainly been mentioned that it would be good to have some redirections um to books i just had such a brilliantly happy experience working with them as i wrote about this week you know i had different offers for hard-boiled i could have taken it to different places i chose to work with them because of you know what i what i knew the experience was going to be and i wasn't wrong you know i don't mm -hmm. regret that decision for a minute and from beginning to end it was a a happy experience and i you know if i'd have been doing and in fact i am doing some more books um, and i would have considered actually doing with them again i'd have happily worked with them again and i just think that from a branding point of view from a sort of a perception point of view i'm sad that the way that the closure was handled could be the last memory that i've got about working with them and that's sad and you know hopefully we can learn from the experience you know if something similar happens in the future maybe people won't make the same mistakes again that's what i hope well, okay, let's move on. Let's, let's move on. Let's, um, let me do another sponsor. This sponsor is Forge. Hmm. So I know, Rachel, we talk about CMSs a lot on the show, but you might have to close your ears now. <laughs> stick, stick your fingers in your ears for a minute. Cause there are times, according to this sponsor, Reed, there are times <laughs> I can't think what they'd be. Who makes this stuff up? There may be times. There are times when you might need to host static websites. Oh, the hairs on the back of Rachel's neck just stood up. <laughs> I have no problem with static websites. <laughs> Drew built a hobo static site generator the other day. For... <laughs> so, static sites happen. That's cool. So you might 
want to make a site maybe for a special occasion like Drew just did, possibly a wedding or uh, I don't know, maybe even a road trip. We've done a few in the past. Road trips, not weddings. <laughs> you know, you might you might need a st- this is rubbish this sponsor reach let's start this again you might need a static holding page maybe for a new startup or an app that you're building and um, you know maybe for me because i like designing with using code i often make a static version of a site that i'm working on in the form of linked up templates so that clients can get a sense of what it's going to be like for a customer to click around the site so forge is a new way to host static websites they say it's static hosting made simple and it isn't and everything for everybody hosting services, they don't provide email accounts or databases. They just do one thing, and that's host static sites really well. So to upload to Forge, it couldn't be simpler. You don't even need to use FTP. You just log into Forge in the web browser, drag a zip file that contains your site into the window, and that's it. Cool. Your site's going to get set up on a getforge.io domain, and, of course, you can use custom domains with Forge too. And Forge gives you version-based history, so you can roll back to any previous version of your site. And most important of all, especially today when we're all concerned about performance, Forge is really fast. I mean, it's blazingly fast. It uses something called TurboJS, but I have no idea what that is. I just read this stuff out. And that means that all your markup and assets, they're processed to eliminate page loads and they speed everything up. So all your assets get loaded from a content delivery system so your content's delivered as quickly as possible. There's a free account. You get one site and up to five gigabytes of bandwidth per month. But Forge is really reasonably priced when you need more than that. The basic plan includes five sites at $10 a month. And the pro plan includes up to 20 sites and 40 gigs of bandwidth per month for only $20. And if you use the offer code unfinished, you'll get a whopping 50% off for the first two months. So what are you waiting for? Go to unfinished.bz slash forge and get Forge. That sounds cool. Actually, joking apart, it actually, if you've, if you've got a static site to host, then putting it somewhere like that is a really good idea because you haven't got all the security issues of having other things running on the server. And you're not going to have somebody else on the shared hosting who's got a load of other things going on on their site, which is killing the performance. You know, so actually, if you've got a static site, then they sound like a fantastic um, idea really rather than going for some other standard hosting well we did a couple of road trip holidays in the past and you know when alex was growing up we made it a bit more fun to make a little website to go with it and yeah we'd post our pictures and our blog posts and stuff to it and like a complete muppet i built them on expression engine mm. Because, you know, I thought, well, it's easy, you know, because it'd be easy for Alex to post pictures. It'd be easy for family to leave comments, that kind of stuff. Well, they rarely did. Mm. So now what I'm left with is two sites, you know, two databases and two things that I have to sort of worry about. Whereas if I'd just done this bloody flat HTML, because Alex can write HTML. He's he's demon with with code. Mm. You know, I wouldn't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff. Uh, well, if what you want to, what you want to do is you want to just crawl them. From, uh, this is what I did. I had a bunch of old stuff which was built on heaven knows what things I've built in the past, you know, like some sort of CMS thing I'd written in classic ASP. Um, you can sort of spider them from the front end and save them out as HTML documents, then just host the static HTML if you just want to archive stuff off. I think there's even a generator that will do that for you. There's a site where you put in the URL and it will just grab all the HTML and CSS for you. That's what I need to do because it's, I don't want to keep maintaining these things forever. Yeah. I mean, that's if you've got stuff that's kind of, yeah, is essentially archived and it's in a CMS, then it's, it's pretty trivial to, to sort of spider it all save as a set of HTML files um, and then just host those somewhere. Well, you know, 
something like Forge would be ideal for that. You could just you could pop them up there and, and then just let them sit there. And you haven't got the security issue of an out-of-date CMS backing something, which is, is just an archive. I need to find some time, but that's what I need to do. A couple of people have asked me by email about what happens to any stock of physical books with hard-boiled. Because at the moment you can buy the EPUB through Smashing, but the only physical copies that you can get your hands on are actually in my drawer. Um, and nobody's coming around to dig those out. <laughs> there is a stock of physical copies of hard boils and they're in warehouses. There's, there's warehouses in Europe. There's warehouses on the east and the west coast of the US. Cause obviously that makes your distribution easier. Mm-hmm. There's actually more copies than I thought of first imagined. Um, so now what we're trying to do is that, I mean, those effectively belong to me now. I'm trying to figure out with the help of partners at Smashing Magazine what we can do with those books. I'm not going to talk about figures at the moment because I want to keep all of that quiet until the dust settled. Uh, but we might be doing something really nice with those. And, yeah, I'll keep you posted. The big question then for me, forgetting, you know, what's happened, putting it all behind us, um, as I hope that everybody will, what does this mean for other small publishers and for authors? Yeah, I, I, that that to me is the interesting question because, you know, we now know that Five Simple Steps weren't really able to make this work as a viable business. And having a, a publishing company that is offering sort of these sort of profit share type agreements is treating authors very fairly, which they did. Um, you know, is does that even work? Uh, you know, how 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 does that work? Because I think, you know, publishing generally is is having quite a hard time. I mean, I remember back in the day, you know, when, when really, I think before I started writing books, certainly because Drew had a book before I did, and he was right at that point where you still got offered quite big advances for books. If you wrote a technical book, you know, you'd be offered quite a chunky advance on your royalties. And it was kind of, that would be enough to almost be worth you writing the book just for that amount. Um, now that doesn't happen anymore. So, you know, you, you get very little up front now if you write a book, really. Should we just explain to people that might not know how the publishing game normally works mm. in reference to advances and royalties and things like that? Cause I'm sure people think that, that, you know, writing books like CSS anthology and hard boiled or transcending CSS means that somehow, you know, we might not be, ha- we might not be, um, JK Rowling, but you know, we might, <laughs> we probably did quite well out of them. Mm. Um, and I'm sure people, I'm sure people will be quite surprised actually as to how these things actually pan out. Um, yeah. So basically, gen, with a traditional publisher, what you will generally get is what's called an advance on royalties. So you get paid royalties, which is a percentage of, of your book. That tends to be for most of us about 50 pence, you know, just under a dollar or whatever, um, per copy is what it works out for, for a decent sized book. Um, so to kind of, uh, encourage you to even just like start writing the thing, you'll get offered an advance on royalties. So the first chunk of money you get given is then taken out of the royalty amount that's due to you. So, um, you're not sort of paid anything. You're not paid an hourly rate. You're not paid anything for, for writing. The money you're given is, is an advance. Um, and you know, it used to be you'd get paid quite a good advance. You'd, you'd kind of think, Oh, well, even if I don't sell any more copies, I never pay out my advance. I'll still have this chunk of money. That'll be worth doing. Um, you don't really get those kinds of advances anymore. I can't remember what my advance was for transcending CSS. I think it was about $5,000. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a, 
that's a that's a decent amount, I think. You know, mine have been. I think I'm trying to remember back, they certainly were more. They've they've got less and less as time went on. You know, and 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 basically because the publishers know they're not going to sell as many books, or they can't sell them at a decent profit. I mean, you know, the amount of profit you get for a, a book that's sold on Amazon is uh, is very small. I learned a lot through that transcending CSS process because. You know, I did get an advance and then you start getting into royalties and, you know, the royalties are actually pretty good at the beginning. You know, they weren't enough to, to buy a boat, but <laughs> I have got nowhere to put a boat. But one of the interesting things that I thought, and I, I went into this very naively because I thought, well, hang on, if you're selling a book for, and I'm going to use round numbers, mm. let's imagine that the cover price of a book is 30 quid mm. as, you know, they were then, mm-hmm. you know, 30 quid for a, for a design technical book was, was sort of average. Mm-hmm. And let's imagine that your royalty was 10%. Mm -hmm. So you imagine to yourself, right, okay, I'm going to make £3 per book. Well, of course, actually, it doesn't quite work like that. What you get is you get a percentage of what the book actually sells for. And quite often, if you do a hunt on Amazon, you know, for a, for a new book, you know, even if it's, I think the last one I looked at was when Koi Vin's grid book came out. Um, and he's kind of just announced that and it was on Amazon and it was already discounted mm. because of, you know, Amazon's loss leader policy. Mm. Uh, you actually get your royalty based on what the book actually sells for, not what the book, not, not, not the sticker price. And the interesting thing also is that distributors like Amazon, they take 60% or did at the time, mm. they took 60% of the, of the value straight off the top. Mm. So instead of a book that, you know, was 30 quid, um, and getting 10% of that, you'd basically be getting a, the value of what, sort of 15 quid, roughly, you mm. know, 12, 15 quid. So you'd be getting £1.20. And then if it was discounted heavily, let's say it was discounted by 50%, you back down to something like 60p per book. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems to be about average. Yeah. So instead of earning £3 per book, and you think, wow, £3 per book, and he sold 20,000 copies, which, you know, Transcending sold really well. You know, you think £3 a book, 20,000 copies, there's enough to, you know, buy a car there. But actually, when you work it out, you, you don't earn, you don't earn, I think, enough to make it financially viable to write for a big publisher. No. Anymore. No, I, it, I, I really think that the only reason to write for a big publisher um, at this point really is if there is some other benefit in you doing so. And, and there are benefits, you know, there are benefits in terms of your profile, if you've got an O'Reilly book or whatever, or, you know, there's, there's, so there's benefits in terms of people thinking that, you know, sort of thing where they've written a book, they must know what they're talking about, um, which people do. Yeah. So that, that's a benefit and you can't, it's very difficult to work out, you know, those kind of benefits and how much you sort of benefit from that, you know, in hindsight. How much benefit is there from the, like the name that the publisher has and their abilities to market? Or are you just putting all your eggs in one basket if you rely on that? I don't, I think at one point there was probably more than there is now. I think, you know, the big name publishers, 10 years ago, it was a bit different. I think people aren't so bothered now generally about, you know, who the book's been published by. But there's, there's definitely a bit of a thing, isn't there? You know, O'Reilly or, or whatever, you know, I think are the big names. Or, you know, people people get very excited to get an animal book, don't they? You know, so. <laughs> um, but I don't think I don't think there's um, as much as there was. There certainly was at one point, you know, there were some some big publishers who you'd sort of feel like, oh, you know, I've sort of made it if I've... Um, been published by them but yeah so and and also i mean there is distribution and i think there is something about you know walking into a bookshop i mean there are a few bookshops left and if you walk into a bookshop and your book is there on the shelf 
You know, I can remember the first time I did that. Oh, we did that. Yeah. Alex and I were in, uh, I think it was Foils in London, and we went to the computer section and saw Transcending yeah. there. And somebody was actually standing there reading it, <laughs> flicking through. And it was it was an amazing feeling. And you're right, at the time, I mean, I had a good experience working with new riders. They were, they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think there was a certain cachet. Yeah, absolutely. In I think, writing for them at that point, and uh, you know, you, I think if you've never had a book printed and sent out to bookshops and things, you know, that might just be something you want to do. And you know, I I can't sit here with all the books I've written, all the physical books I've got weighing down bookshelves in my house. Um, you know, I can't sit here and say, oh, nobody should go with a publisher because you know I know how important that was to me. But do you think now it might be naive to? hope for that because it's so unlikely to happen with the with the fact that with bookshops and the distribution but you know and having physical books i mean there were times when i was working you know we were working for design agencies as as a company you know all of our work was was working building sites for other people you know i'd go into someone's office i'm pitching for a job and they've got one of my books on their shelf and you know i i can't quantify how much that sort of stuff was worth to me i didn't make a huge amount of money out of a lot of those books you know, in terms of royalties, but I can't quantify, you know, how many people said, yes, we'll, we'll go with Edge of My Seat rather than another company because of that. It's very difficult to know. I took copies of Hard Boiled to a couple of big meetings for clients in Geneva and left it there. Mm. You know, we had the meeting and I, and what, what does it cost? You know, a few quid. And I left them a copy of Hard Boiled as a gift for their developers or something, mm. knowing that, that actually that, you know, that said something. Yeah, of course. Yeah, not everybody else who was pitching was going to be able to do that. Exactly. Yeah, to me, I think that's why I think like people would write books now is more for that prestige of having written a book and appearing to be the expert rather than... I, I don't know. Would anyone do it for money now? Or I think they might be mad if they do. I, 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 mean, I, I still get people assuming that you make... If you go with a publisher, that's how you will make money. Um, and I think that's, and I'm, I'm going to post a blog post about this. I've been collecting a bit of data on books and what people earned from books. And really, overwhelmingly, self-publishers earn more money. Um, their distribution is far smaller. They sell far fewer copies, but they make more money. So, you know, if you're wanting to make money from a book, um, I would suggest self-publishing it on your own website and just do that. If you're wanting the distribution and the fact it might well help promote you as a consultant or as a public speaker or whatever else you're wanting to do, then, you know, use it as a career move. You know, if it doesn't make you money itself, that's that's okay if, if it's part of a kind of bigger plan. The big publisher thing, you know, the new writers, because that's, that's who I can speak from experience about. They obviously had big marketing power, not so much in maybe in terms of our small niche corner of the industry because i think that anybody that i know you know anybody that maybe now follows me on twitter they might have bought the book just because they you know they knew about it from other ways we mustn't forget the the enormous amount of people that are out there particularly in the us that are working in institutions or uh, big organizations or education or something like that that is a massive market oh absolutely and somebody like new riders will be able to tap into that or o'reilly's or 
whoever the other ones were. They'll be able to tap into that, whereas a smaller publisher won't be able to do that. So the way that I look at it is that it's kind of graded in a way. You know that you're going to get maximum exposure globally through going through a larger publisher. So you'll sell more units, Mm -hmm. but you'll make a much, much, much smaller return. Mm -hmm. You've then got the decision that I made with Five Simple Steps, which is to go with a smaller publisher get a much better deal. I mean, and I think that I don't know whether this was the first time it was done or whether or not it was becoming common, but what we did was we struck a 50-50 deal. Mm -hmm. My part of the bargain was I'd go away for 10 months and make the book and then and write the book, and then they would actually make it, print it, sell it, do all of the machinery. Mm -hmm. That's what they would do. Mm -hmm. And they also provided access to people like Chris Mills and Owen Gregory, and Mm. they paid for the cover, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then we split 50-50 profits. Now, I knew that we would sell a quarter of the number of books, but I made much more on hard-boiled financially than I did on Transcending in a much shorter space of time. And I think you had the control over that book as well. And I think that's something that's worth pointing out is that if you go with the big publishers, you essentially lose control of your words. Um, yes. You know, I I had a book that was ready to go to print. Um, as far as I was concerned, it was done. I'd done the job I was asked to do. Um, I, it was essentially written to order. I'd been asked to write about a very specific topic. I wrote about the topic. I, you know, did it, you know, I'm, I'm a professional writer. I, you know, they, they had an outline. I, I, I wrote the outline. I gave them it. It had been through an editing process. And then someone at the publisher decided they wanted to make a point. And they took the book and they rewrote my words. Um, and then they, and, and, you know, in, I ended up putting it out as a co-author because I wasn't willing to have my name on it. But it's that sort of thing that happens. Um, even in small ways, you know, I've sometimes I've got the printed copies of the book and realized that at an editing stage, past the editing stage, I got to see it. Some things have been rewritten in a way that actually makes them wrong. And I've got to submit a rata against my own book. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, you know, and that, that's happened so many times. Um, so you do lose control of your words. Whereas I think with smaller publishers, or obviously self-publishing, you know, you get to have an awful lot more control and you get to say, you get to push back and say, no, I don't think that's right. I'm not that, I'm not happy for that to go out. Um, and so you've got this weird thing where the only reason to go with a big publisher is because it's better for your career. You know, it, it, that's really the, the main reason. It, it, it's going to help you get your words out there. It's going to help you get known. But you may well find that they actually say things you wouldn't be happy to say, it, it, but in your voice. <laughs> and that's happened a number of times, and, and it's not great. I didn't have that happen with Transcending, apart from they would change things to be American English rather than British English. That always happens. I mean, you, yeah, you get Americanized. It's, <laughs> it's a weird feeling when someone's changed your spellings of everything so that you sound American. I kind of just Americanize myself now. It's <laughs> oh, well, don't get started on that. Owen Gregory is a superb editor. He worked with me on Hard Boiled. And the best editors are the people that when you read the book back, you can't tell where your words stop and theirs start with a small publisher particularly if you know the people as we did we get creative control over the look of the thing which is important Mm -hmm. but they also know what we're trying to do it's not like we're going into a sausage factory you know they know the points that we're trying to make and they 
had, particularly with all of the CSS stuff, you know, they would have an opinion over, well, hang on a minute. You can't, you, you can't promote that. That's, that's completely wrong. When we did this job for so and so, we couldn't have done. And it was great to be able to get that feedback. Rachel, when you self published, did you have an editor or did you do it all yourself? I edited myself. That's not, not idea. Part of it was because I kind of wanted just to get, the, get the thing out there. Um, I, I mean, I've also, I'm quite experienced as an editor. It's not ideal to edit your own stuff. And although it has to be said, I've had fewer typos reported than in anything else I've ever published that went through a proper editing process. Um, cause I'm, I'm, what I, what I did was every chapter I put it to one side, um, carried on writing and then went back and looked at it as if I was editing it. Um, you know, sort of looked at it fresh and started pulling it apart. Um, it's definitely better, particularly for technical stuff. But what I, what I find with technical books is the most important thing is having a fantastic technical editor. And they're really hard to find. Uh, you want someone who's going to run all the code. You want someone who's going to really argue with you about the way you've done things and structured things. And, and it's quite difficult to find those people. Um, and with this not being a, a, a technical book, it's a business book. Um, it was a little bit different and I felt quite happy just to step away from it, step back and then, stop pulling it apart myself yeah talking about technical editing this is another thing with with big publishers i mean i know several people that have done technical editing for larger publishers in the past on 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 css books Mm -hmm. and the going rate at the time i mean this is going back a few years now but i doubt that it's changed that much the going rate at the time for a technical editor was 500 dollars for an entire book yeah and that's that's why they often don't bother testing stuff i um having had some bad experience with technical editors i put mistakes in my code which i know about (laughs) and if if the technical editor spots them, I know they're doing a thorough job and, um, I can not worry. If the technical editor doesn't spot them, I'll, I've, have in the past actually got somebody else to go over all my code to make sure it's correct because I've been aware that the one that the publisher has provided isn't doing any work. I hid an I hate Tim Van Dam dot PNG image in my code for hard boiled because Tim Van Dam <laughs> was the tech editor. <laughs> That's just actually, to see yes that's uh, that's about yeah I, i'll put in little silly mistakes just swap things out. Do, you know do something that would be really obvious if you were were actually running the code or if you were properly looking at it and then if they pick it up i'm like yeah they are actually doing this so <laughs> i'm not gonna do another one like this i mean transcending was transcending was i would say it was a labor of love it was more like jesus it needed a cesarean <laughs> section it was it oh man it was not a pleasant experience Hard boiled was, was way better, but they were both, they were both big books, you know, 300 plus pages. Mm. One of the interesting things about five simple steps was that they over the, 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 the last few years were concentrating on pocket guides. So the last, what I'll call blockbuster book was actually John Hicks's icon handbook. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at my bookshop shelf now and i get sent things you know it's it's nice people send me books but the vast majority of things i'm sent now are small i mean they're not you know often bigger than pocket Mm -hmm. guides but it's all small stuff i haven't been sent apart from ben frayne's responsive design book and i think tim cadlet did a, a responsive design book last year as well apart from those i haven't really seen any large well, I'll call them blockbuster books, as we used to see in the past. You know, we used to see things like, for example, a designing with web standards or a Zen of CSS design or, you know, those kind of things. Mm, I think what we used to get a lot in the past, though, as well, were those big multi-author books. I mean, I've, I've worked on quite a few of them. 
And I think now what happens is you get these little focused books. In the past, what used to happen is they'd just get like 10 authors together. I remember those, like those rocks books that had like, you know, oh, all, God, all, yeah. all, all, all the, um, all the white men posing. Um, yeah. Was- all the white, all the white men that were obviously comped together yeah. because all of the lighting would come from different sides. I have one. Where was it? It's, yeah, um, we had loads of them. I think we gave them to a university. It's called, I've got one behind me. It's called Professional CSS and I only keep it because it has the most hilarious picture of Ethan Markov. On the cover. <laughs> oh, I remember that one. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so the- and Dunstan Orchard. Oh, wow. Yes. I know the exact book. Yeah. But I think that was that was what used to happen was that i think there was an assumption that you know a book had to be quite big otherwise it wasn't sort of worthwhile and so you'd get these multi-author things which were always you know sort of a bit weird um and and yeah i think now the smaller publishers particularly are just happy to say well this is a subject that can be dealt with in a small book it won't take up too much of your time and also you know it can be revised quickly and easily when when things change because things change fast you know so i think maybe it's just the way the market's changed a bit as well i think it's easier on the readers as well but i I love the shorter books because you can do them in a flight or an afternoon and Mm. you get that hit of knowledge but it it is less involved it's not such a like a a big narrative as sort of the big ones like hard-boiled and things would be is it also possible that people have realized just how much commitment that you have to make to write a big book? And when you do that alongside your day job, as a lot of people try to do, it's nigh on impossible. Yeah, I think that that was um, when I was talking to Emma about the pocket guides originally, when they, because I was, well, I was one of the, the first set of those pocket guides. Um, and that was what she was saying, you know, it's quite hard to find great authors, you know, people who are going to be, have a really good insight into their subject. It was hard to find them for a big book because they were too busy. Whereas, you know, the pocket guide, I mean, basically the information that's in my pocket guide is pretty much the same information that I use when I do my talk about CSS layout modules. It's, so it's kind of like a talk's worth of information in a pocket guide, which, yeah, that's a, that's a fairly chunk, big chunk of work. I think it took me a week or so to, to write. A week? Yeah. I had the research though. It's the stuff I think about. So you're a fast writer as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do churn out nonsense all the time. You know, um, <laughs> no, I mean, I had it in my head though already. So yeah, Laura, would you cons- would you be more likely to commit to a smaller book size, a pocket guide size, than you would be to? Why haven't you written a book about accessibility? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I have spoken to someone about that. But it was, I was approached because I'm reluctant to, because I know I can see how hard it is to write a book. Even writing a column every few weeks, I find difficult. And so I'm aware of the amount of commitment, but I would definitely be more likely to go with a small publisher mm. because I'm a control freak as well. Um, but I like the, I like the more friendly nature as well of the publishers. Like one of the reasons why I bought so many books from Five Simple Steps and I buy so many books from a book apart and sort of publishers like that is because they just, they have a nice feel to them. You feel like I can trust the information in this book as well because I know the people writing it are well intentioned. Um, I think from a reader's point of view, I trust the small publishers. So do you think? 
in general that this closure might make people, new authors particularly, less likely to trust a small publisher? I think they'd be scared. I think that it, that it might disappear. I think that there's so, sort of such a difference in some ways in kind of sort of publishing yourself and going with a small publisher. I think what you get from a, a small publisher is they've got that kind of ready-made, well, we're going to sell it, we've got a way to sell it. And if you want to print it, printing stuff yourself is hard. So that's kind of a, a good reason to go with a publisher. And if you can go with a small publisher and keep control over it, that's cool. Um, I think it might make people ask more questions first. You know, well, what happens if this doesn't work out for you? You know, what happened, you know, look what happened with five simple steps. What, what happens if this doesn't work out for you? And then what rights will I get? And, and, and so on. I think maybe that'll make people ask that question a bit more. I think you're probably right. I'd like to see a lot more of that written into the contracts that we sign. I know that very little of what has affected us this week was actually in that contract. Yes. I think, yeah, we, they could have done something very different. And, I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad that that was mentioned at the start that actually they, they treated people very fairly in terms of what, what they gave back to us. I wonder whether people may think that the rewards of working with a small publisher might be outweighed by the risks. I worry about that. Mm, I, I would worry that people would go racing off to the, the big publishers without thinking that through because you might think, oh, well, there'll be a safe pair of hands. They're not going to go anywhere. But I mean, I've, you know, I've had big publishers go bust. You know, I was, um, well, actually, you know, my first publisher, I was with, um, Glasshouse. Do you remember them? I do remember. So that. that was how, that was how I got started was writing for Glasshouse, who were part of Rocks. Um, and that was how I met people like Bruce Lawson, um, and Simon Mackey. And, um, they went bust. And, you know, a lot of people who worked for them and people who'd written for them were basically just, well, that's it. We've gone. Um, we weren't paid royalties. We were owed and, and all sorts. And that was a completely different, that was a completely different situation. It was uh, pretty miserable. There's no guarantee that a big publisher isn't going to disappear. Um, you know, it's a bit like thinking that working for yourself is, uh, more risky than being employed. Well, you know, you know, plenty of people who are employed who suddenly don't have a job. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Um, so I think you might think a small publisher is more risky, but I don't think there's any guarantees going with a big one either. And obviously the rewards are going to be far less. I wouldn't like to think that X five simple steps authors are just going to, and this is one of the problems that I think with the, with the abruptness of the announcement was that people might make hasty decisions. And one of those hasty decisions might be to be sucked up by a large publisher without people understanding the full implications of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say being to anyone able to who, weigh it up. Yeah. I'd say to anyone who's in that situation, I've got a bunch of just personal data, you know, information about my books, um, which if someone was like, Oh, what decision should I make? I would be very happy to talk through what I know about big publishers and small publishers and self publishing with anyone. Um, you know, just, just in terms of helping them make their own decision. Uh, cause you know, there are, there are reasons to go with a big publisher, as I say. There are, there are certainly career reasons to go with a big publisher, but I think you need to be aware what you're getting into. I think that for things that I do in the future, I might actually do a combination deal. So for example, it would be very sensible of me, I think now, but being in a position, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but cause I haven't got a trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, who has? Who has a trumpet? Um, 
I do have uh, the ability to reach, well, 30,000 people at least, you know, by banging out a tweet. So, you know, I have I have a, an amplifier that I can use. Yeah. So if I do want to write another shorter book, which I intend to do, then I'll be able to actually promote that, albeit on a limited scale, to the people that listen to me. And, I'll, and by self-publishing that ebook, I'll probably do, hopefully do well, um, enough to make it worth the exercise. It doesn't mean that that's the only channel for the sale of that book. I could quite easily say to, and I'm just going to say Smashing Magazine because, and I haven't spoken to them about this, but, you know, it's a possibility. We'll probably have this conversation. Would they like to sell my book too? And the copies that they sell, they take 50% of. Yes. And then yeah. I get access to a different market. And maybe maybe you split the uh, the print uh, and the EPUB distribution rights so that somebody, oh, I don't know, I'll say a big publisher, I'll say um, uh, a, a new writers. Mm -hmm. Maybe they would want to take on the actual print distribution, which would get me into, let's say, the um, American institutional market. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think authors need to do. They need to think more strategically, perhaps, about where they put their stuff and not just jump for the same, you know, jump at the first offer. That sort of deal is going to become more common. I think it'll have to, you know, if, if, if publishers want to have, you know, certain authors who've already got a bit of a name for themselves on, on their roster, really. So I think that, you know, those of us who have got a bit of an audience, probably we should push for that sort of stuff. Um, because then it kind of paves the way for everybody to get those deals, you know? Um, and yet you know, I think that what, what has been normal probably needs to change. And, and perhaps these small publishers that, you know, do struggle a bit because it's, things are just changing in, in the sort of book market. Um, and hopefully we can sort of forge ahead with something that is, is fairer and better for everyone who's writing. Um, and, you know, and people publishing. So, you know, as, as we've seen with Five Simple Steps, it's not easy to publish and it's not easy to to sell books um, and, and to actually make that work as a business. Do you think, and this is really a question for Laura, I suppose, do you think that this is going to make authors more likely to self-publish now? I think the the one thing that would stop me from doing so is the lack of an editor. I think it probably is going to make people more likely to self-publish. And I wonder if it would then actually mean, are there freelance editors out there that do oh, yeah. that do that kind of thing? And would we start making those kinds of connections with each other instead? Yeah. We could just say right now that Owen Gregory is the best copy editor I've ever worked with. Yeah, and he's, he's a freelancer, isn't he? Really? And he's a freelance guy. So you can hire someone. Yeah, anybody that's out there thinking about, you know, writing a short book, I, w I couldn't recommend him more highly. Yeah, see, I think then I definitely would think about self-publishing. What I needed, I had two editors on Hard Boiled. I needed Owen basically to polish my words, and he's incredibly good at that. But I, I also, I'm not very good at actually having the complete narrative written down from start to finish, the structure of things, what comes before what. I'm not very good at that. And I needed somebody to help me. And I needed somebody also to challenge some of the ideas as well, which is why I asked for Chris Mills to be on the, on the, the, the team as well. Mm. And Chris used to work at Friends of Ed. Are they still going? I don't, are they? Well, now Friends of Ed were part of the whole Rocks Glasshouse thing, weren't they? They were involved. No. That, were, were they part of that imprint though originally? 
or, were, or uh, no, oh no, did they take on some? The friends of Ed took on some of the Glass House um, books. I think that was how it worked. I think they took on. Yeah, some I've of definitely them. got some of their books on my bookshelf that aren't that old. They're owned by A Press. Yeah. yeah, well, that was because A Press took on some of the books as well. I can't remember who bought who. There was there was a whole load of there was a whole chain of people buying people because some of my books that had been started as Glass House ended up with I think Friends of Ed and some ended up with A Press. But maybe A Press now own Friends of Ed as well. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that all worked out. There was a, there's a, I'm looking down here, there's half a shelf of bright pink Friends of Ed books That's that were right, written yeah. by our friends. I mean we've got and some people that aren't our friends. Um we've got Andy Budd's CSS Mastery. That was a Friends of Ed. Yeah. I there can't was, remember what the history uh, of all that was now, you know. I'm getting old. Ah, that's loads of that kind of stuff. There were, there was lots of kind of, there was a few kind of co-author books. There was, what have I got behind me now? Uh, Web Standard Solutions, Dan Cedar Holmes' first book was on there. I've got both of those next to each other as well on my shelf. <laughs> uh, I think Jeremy Keith wrote a book for them as well. There was Web Standard Solutions, which was a multi-author one. There was a, there was a bunch of those things. And I tell you, the reason why I, I did, I did a, a, a lame chapter in this Web Standard Solutions. No, what was it called? Web Standards Creativity Book. And the reason why so many people got involved with Friends of Ed at the time and wrote for them was because of Chris Mills. Yeah. You know, we wanted to work with Chris on something and we weren't really, we weren't writing for Friends of Ed, we were writing for Chris. Yeah. So I think that, I suppose that's one of the reasons why we went to Five Simple Steps as well, because of who was there. I think that this has thrown up a lot of interesting questions. You know, I've, I've put the whole kind of shock of the announcement behind me now. Um, and we're working to just to make sure that, you know, people can buy hard boiled and, 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 and that's great. But I do think that it has asked a lot of questions that potentially we hadn't thought of before. Mm. And not just in terms of how maybe we can do things better when similar things might happen in the future, but also about publishing in general for our kind of small niche area of the market. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of exciting potential. I wonder whether people, oh no, I think it's different when, you know, Rachel, you self-publish, but for somebody else to maybe set up a little small publishing house and then you think, well, you know, it's difficult. You know, I don't want to compete with five simple steps. You know, we feel a certain loyalty, a certain friendliness to people that are still in our industry. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're gone, Maybe that's going to inspire people popping up in different places, doing exciting different things, you know, learning from the model and then doing things differently. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to see. And I think, as I say, there needs to be some kind of redefinition of how how publishing works just because things have changed so much. Um, and, you know, a way, and I think that Five Simple Steps were really trying to do that. I think they were trying to, you know, offer a kind of a, a collaboration between publisher and author in a way that doesn't happen with the traditional publishers. And, you know, I think a book apart, do the same sort of thing. Um, and I think it's, it's in that it's, you know, how, how do we make these relationships work so that everybody gets a fair deal? Um, and, and good books get written and books get written by people who really aren't authors, but yet have got something really cool to say and need a bit of help to, to shape it and to get it out there. Because, you know, most of the people that we know who are writing, you know, aren't professional authors. It might be the first, I mean, you know, when I was asked to write a book, I was like, you know, I, I barely passed my GCSE English, you know. It's, 
<laughs> you know, and, and so for someone to say, yes, you can write about this, you've got something to say and you know, you, you know, you know about your subject will help you to write a book. I mean, that's incredibly powerful. And that's what we need to make sure we don't lose because a lot of the people who are the right person to write about a subject aren't necessarily the person who will put their hand up and say, me, I want to write a book. I think that is the perfect point to leave it. I don't want to say anything else that would take you away from that. That is, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's the sentiment I think that I want people to take away from this today. So we should wrap it up. <laughs> people can, they can follow you, Laura, on Twitter. You are Laura Calbag on everything. Yeah, everything. And Rachel, Rachel Andrew on yep. Twitter. Yeah, everywhere else as well. And grabaperch.com, mm-hmm. obviously, for the stuff that you make. Or me at Malarkey to ask questions or suggest topics you can message this show on twitter at unfinished bz or email me he has at unfinished.bz thanks again to our sponsors this week they were gather content and forge you can support our show by supporting them and if you happen to be judging if you happen to be judging the net awards and you're thinking about voting for unfinished business for podcast of the year i've got a stack of books that you can have <laughs> and a bag of cash. <laughs>